0: The world needs hope now more than ever. Welcome to the Exalted Podcast, where every week I will bring you messages of hope, health, and healing. I want you to be unapologetic about your faith, your success, your health, and the miracles that God is doing in your life. I am your host, Jen Byer. My mission is to equip you in your faith so well that you are able to be a hope dealer in your communities while being as generous as possible with your time, your money, and the talents the Lord has blessed you with. This podcast is sponsored by Exalted Health, where we are ending the war on women hating their bodies. Welcome back to the Exalted Podcast. I am so excited and honored to have Matt Osborne here today. Matt is currently serving as the Deputy Director of the International Operations for Operation Underground Railroad. Before he served for OUR, Osborne served a 12-year career with the Central Intelligence Agency and U.S. Department of State, where he worked issues related to terrorism against the homeland, illegal narcotics, organized crime, and human trafficking. He regularly provided secrets and analysis to U.S. presidents, senior cabinet officials, and the National Security Council. Matt holds a BA in international studies from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and an MA in international policy studies from the Monterey Institute of International Studies in California. That's mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) He has been married for almost 25 years and has two daughters who give him the drive to fight child exploitation and human trafficking and assist persecuted people everywhere. That is quite the resume, and I'm really just honored to have you here today. So thank you for being here and giving us your time.
1: Thank you, Jen. Thanks so much for taking this on, huh? It's a tough topic, but such an important one in this day and age.
0: Absolutely. So as you guys know, my listeners know, I start every single episode with a Jesus moment, just the Lord out there working in everyday life. And today I'm going to share a little bit longer version of that because I'm going to share my personal story of why I am so vested in this fight against human trafficking. And it starts actually a long time ago so it starts almost 15 years ago 15 14 years ago i'm in the national guard and we have regular training that we have to do every single year and most of it's on the computer you know powerpoints that we click through and i remember the first time that we had to do one on human trafficking and i remember thinking to myself like this isn't real. This isn't our problem. Why in the world would they have us waste time doing this? And I'm embarrassed to say that now, but back then I really was that naive. I thought it was, if this is a problem, this is only happening in third world countries, but it stuck with me. And I remember it. And it was a, some number of years later that I started doing a Prayer challenge called the Circle Maker by Mark Batterson. If you guys have heard of it, it's this 40 day prayer challenge where you start circling things in your life. And the Lord had me circle human trafficking. And even back then, I was so afraid of it. It was so dark and so ugly. I could barely pray about it because it was so heavy. On my soul. If it did exist, I didn't want to admit it. I didn't want to engage. I just wanted to kind of close down that part of my brain, but the Lord had me continue to pray for it. And it was a number of years later, I was at an active duty base in California and I was on a training mission and I was on the leadership team for this mission. And I had people on all different shifts, you know, morning shift, swing shift, overnight shift. And so I was spending a lot of time in the lobby of the lodging on the active duty base. And I was spending a lot of time there because I was trying to catch all my people and just connect with them and interact with them to make sure that they were being taken care of and get their training done. And in that lobby, they had uh, what, the, what we call Space A in the military. So civilians that have either retired or they have a family member that's retired and they try to catch military aircraft so they try to catch a military aircraft flight to go to Hawaii it's a really big hub that goes back and forth to Hawaii so this particular group of people was delayed there almost 2 days and i noticed something that put the hair on the back of my neck stand up you know there was this young girl she was asian she didn't speak the language and there was this much older man who would not let her out of his sight and It was so uncomfortable to the point where people on my team were like joking about how this woman was being trafficked, but, but nobody knew what to do and everybody was afraid of, you know, doing or saying something wrong. So nobody did anything. And that really stuck with me. I still remember exactly what she looked like, but what that did is it started fueling me to get educated on what I needed to do if I was in this type of situation, what the signs are other people needed to know. And so I started hosting some events along with my business that were fundraisers for local organizations. I'm in Minnesota here, and so we raised a couple of you know uh, items for survivors that are in like halfway houses, rehabilitating your life. And we were doing a lot of this work. and as husbands sometimes do, my husband was uh, just kind of along for the ride, but he was he was supporting me. Um, but he wasn't as passionate about it as I was. Uh, so we had hosted this event. And the next morning, my husband was driving somewhere. I don't know where he was driving. But there was, it was the middle of October. It was freezing cold. And there was a woman running down the street with hardly any clothes on. And um, she had she was very dirty. It was clear that she hadn't showered in a really long time. And because I had been talking about this, he pulled over to the side of the road. and and asked her if she needed help. This woman barely spoke any English. This woman had been held in captivity for some amount of time. She still had, you know, wounds on her arms around her wrists from where she had been tied. And this was happening in our neighborhood. We lived in an upper middle class suburban neighborhood, and it was happening right around the corner from our house. And of course, in these situations, you don't often hear the end result of it. But what I know is that the day before my husband fully admits, he probably wouldn't have pulled over. He would have thought, what in the world is that woman doing? But because he had gotten educated, he pulled over and asked her if she needed help and was able to get her to the proper authorities. So that's the first encounter that we had. And this continued to obviously fuel my need to get more involved and educate more people. And I'll be honest, most people kind of roll their eyes and reacted, like I did, you know, 12, 13 years ago, when I had that first interaction with it, thinking, "Oh my gosh, this isn't real, or if it is real, what, am I, what could I do?" Um, and then I was coming back I was meeting up with my family in San Antonio. I took a flight into San Antonio, and if you know anything about San Antonio, that is where uh, the gateway to the Air Force is, which is the branch of service that I'm in. That is where all basic training happens, and I had gotten off my flight, and I had come out of the restroom, In straight ahead of me is an open area that leads right to baggage claim, and to the left of me, there was this dark hallway. And I I don't know what made me turn left because there was no reason for me to go that way except the Holy Spirit told me to go that way. And I wouldn't even have been able to articulate that to you at the time, but I turned left. And I got about halfway down the hallway and I could tell that there was a woman in the family bathroom at the end of the hallway being violently sexually assaulted. She was screaming for help. It was very graphic. And So immediately, I I was trying to look for help, but I didn't know how to um, leave leave that opening because right around the corner from that was the exit to the building. And so I knew enough to know about human trafficking that if that was the case in this situation, that a lot of times they'll sexually assault them. They'll pump their arm full of drugs, and then they'll just get them out of the building so nobody knows. So I knew I couldn't go far, but I knew I had to get help um, there was a human trafficking number already programmed into my phone because I'd done the training but I didn't think I had enough time for authorities to get there I needed to find an authority in that airport and so I was able to locate somebody we were able to you know stand outside that restroom but I also knew I couldn't stand too close because if they came out I could potentially put myself at risk it was a very secluded area that was nobody else around and so Luckily I was able to intercede and get uh, the police officer involved and I was talking to him afterwards and uh, he said that they they knew that this had become a target area because these women going to basic training could go missing for several days uh, before before people would know that they were missing. Um, And it had become a problem in that area just recently. And I just find it completely ironic that I went from believing that I, that I couldn't do anything, to you know being on an active duty base and witnessing something and not knowing what to do, and then all of a sudden in another situation where I'm directly impacting the, the Air Force again. Uh, so after this, I started to get really even more loud about why I was involved. And last year, I put a call to action out um, on social media and just asked people to get trained through Operation Underground Railroad because they have a fabulous training And I had like 25, 30 people answer that call. And what I did is I made a donation for every single person that that did it. So I asked them to report back to me. And then the number of stories that have come in since then of people that have either been able to intercede, get authorities involved, or just call in tips when they see something out of the ordinary. Like I've lost count of how many those have been. And I don't share that to brag or toot my own horn. I share that because literally, you know, that first encounter with human trafficking, my thought was what in the world could I do? My first thought when the Lord had me circling this in prayer is like, what in the world could I do? And he's brought me so far in the last couple of years. And I'm certainly, you know, not going on undercover missions like our guest Matt here is today, but I'm doing what I know how to do. And I'm doing what the Lord's called me to do. And I'm never going to stop talking about it because everybody really needs to know how big of a problem this really is. So that's how I got involved, Matt.
1: <laughs> that is absolutely incredible, Jen, your story. And a couple of things came to mind when you were talking. It's something a college professor of mine once told me, and he was talking about just in general, actually, I think he was talking about sightseeing in Europe, believe it or not. He said, the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. And so Mm. if you don't know about the problems of trafficking, you're never going to see it. But now you see it, your husband sees it, other people you're getting involved in, uh, you know, as you get involved. And that's what we try to do at Operation Underground Railroad is really to educate, uh, to educate that this is trafficking, not prostitution. This is, these are victims, not volunteers. And, you know, with my story is I was exposed to this when I was working for the U.S. government overseas in Spain and I had to write the trafficking in persons report for the U.S. Department of State. This was back in 2006, so 15 years ago. Uh, I really thought that this was the movie Pretty Woman, if you remember that, Julia Roberts and Richard Gere, you know, people of a certain age remember that movie, that this was how she was choosing to make her living. And boy, was I wrong when my eyes were open and seeing it. And so it sounds like you had a lot of the same type of experiences. And the fact now that you are educated to know the signs of trafficking and what amazing opportunities you have to spot people who may be in need
0: right yeah it it was life changing and it's like one of those things where it's just like like once your eyes are open to it you can never unsee it and you can never be quiet yep. about it again and i'm sure it was a similar situation for you
1: exactly right and you know i love too when you talk about the jesus moment and i uh, absolutely love the bible reading the bible i think that if something's written in the bible it's important if it's written once If it's written twice, wow, really important. If it's written three different times, holy cow, we all need to stand up and listen. And as you know and your listeners know that in three of the four Gospels, I think it's Matthew, Mark, and John, essentially it records the words of the Savior saying, and I'll paraphrase, it were better for him that a millstone be placed around his neck and he be cast... Into the middle of the sea, than for him to cause one of these children, precious children of mine, to stumble or to sin, and that's exactly what these human traffickers are doing. And right. so, with O U R, you know, we have many faiths who make up our uh, the, the employees in our organization. We actually have people, believe it or not, who profess to be atheists, but they know they're right. You know, they know there is right in this world and wrong. But we are definitely an organization that follows the teachings of Jesus Christ that tries to do all we can to go after the one. And you remember the savior left the 90 and nine and went for the one. And yes. we can't save them all, but we can make a difference to one and then five and 10. And we have been able in our existence since 2013, 2014, to assist in the rescue of over 5,000 uh, trafficking victims, many of them children, some through direct action of our own undercover rescue operations, some because of training, tools, technology we provided to other law enforcement units, some support we give to other anti-trafficking organizations working in different places. But really, it only matters if you just save one, right? That's a success. And then we've tried to branch out. But I'm just so grateful to your podcast here because this is what we need to do first and foremost is educate our fellow countrymen and fellow citizens of the world that this is a huge problem. And in my mind, this is the crime of the century, right? I mean, drug yes. trafficking, terrible arms trafficking, but human trafficking, isn't it? This is such an insidious problem that we're seeing around the world.
0: Yes, I absolutely agree. So tell us the story from how you went for working for a government agency into a private agency and what that looked like.
1: So I met our founder, Tim Ballard. Some of you know him, founder of Operation Underground Railroad. He and I were graduate school students together out in California, the Monterey Institute of International Studies. It's now part of the Middlebury program. And Tim always wanted to be a, a U.S. customs agent, law enforcement, work on the border of Southern California and Mexico, where he grew up. And I wanted to go into the CIA and work in intelligence and then through diplomacy with the U.S. Department of state. Well, we each started in around 2002 with the government. You remember, this is after the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. Mm-hmm. So we each were kind of fighting terrorism, working in national security. Well, he, Tim, had given, been given a job at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, uh, Homeland Security Investigations, where he worked, to fight child crimes, to fight some of the Worst of these predators who would go and and again, as we you know talking about in the Bible, cause these little ones to su- stumble into sin, and he would go after those who were hooked on uh, child pornography and child sex abuse material, and those Americans who were traveling overseas to exploit uh, uh children. Well, where Tim was in the government, he could only work cases where there was a U.S. nexus, a U.S. tie was the kid American, was the bad guy American, was money passing through American banks would this case wind up in a us court of law if the answer to that question was no then he couldn't work the case and that meant for him that the vast majority of children being exploited around the world fell out of his jurisdiction so he was a man of faith and he decided to leave the government and form a nonprofit organization to then help governments in the united states and around the world to fight human trafficking and he began to work on me in the year 2014 to join him and as I often joke, his pitch essentially was, Matt, I want you to give up the safety of the U.S. government. Uncle Sam paying you faithfully twice a month. I want you to come join an organization where you only get paid if the donations come in that month. And <laughs> I said, well, wait a sec, Tim. I, I said, you know, you're the brave one. I'm still kind of chicken. I don't think I can do this. And and so there was something about, you know, God, I felt leading me to this. And, and, and through prayer, um, he was bringing to my mind, my two daughters, Annie and Grace. Right now they're 19 years old and 16 years old, but you can imagine, you know, seven, eight years ago, how how much younger they were. And it was something, the feeling I kept getting when praying was, so you're blessed to live in the United States of America. You're blessed to have these wonderful daughters and a wonderful wife. Well, don't all kids deserve to have a childhood. And so why don't you dedicate your life to doing all you can. So I made the leap of faith back in 2014 to join, to lead our undercover operations around the world, to help in the aftercare. And it has been one of the most uh, rewarding experiences of my life, even as you can imagine, Jen, the, 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 the horror, the sadness, the darkness we have to see on a daily basis during our undercover operations.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't know how anybody would, would do that without faith. I, I can't imagine. So... Yeah. I'm thankful that you are a man of faith because so, I know it's different when you have something to lean on like that. So you might have answered this already for me, but how many undercover missions have you been on?
1: So I am almost up to 25 missions. Um, I've been fortunate to assist in the rescue of about 190 trafficking victims. And in oftentimes, a really important statistic to assist in the arrest of over 60 suspected traffickers. Now, again, some of them were let off later on or only served a little bit and are now out, but to be able to remove the predators from the streets. And that's what we really do at Operation Underground Railroad. And that's why Tim founded our organization. He saw many great groups on the front end of this problem. They were dealing with the front end of raising awareness, holding conferences, uh, working on education, and that's vital for the long-term solution uh, and to this problem. And then he saw many on the back end, aftercare homes, restoration, rehabilitation, getting these kids back to the life God had intended for them. But he saw very few organizations that were willing to go in and try to rescue the kids who now are being uh, forced into commercial sexual exploitation and forced labor. And so... That's why we decided to be that group that would go in and would do this, working always with law enforcement, never as a vigilante group, right? Always going in with... With our partners, uh, helping them either give them a fish in some respects or teaching them to fish, uh, as we learn, you know, in the Bible and elsewhere, and so that has been very successful as well. To see some of our partner countries around the world who now don't need as much of our help, and yet they are launching these child rescue operations on their
0: own—that's incredible. Because that's how that's how you make change, right?
1: Exactly.
0: So, how do you mentally prepare when you're going out on a mission? I cannot imagine that process.
1: Yeah, this is crazy. And so, you know, as you mentioned in my bio, I've been married almost 25 years. And it's probably the same in your marriage, I'd imagine. You're the smarter one. You're the more insightful. And <laughs> that certainly is the case in my marriage. My wife is just amazing. And she was interesting when I was leaving and took the big leap of faith to leave the CIA, again, give up the government pension, give up government health care, and do this and join. And she said, you know, Matt, you think you're so cool. You've been with the CIA. You've traveled around the world. You've done all these amazing things. This with Operation Underground Railroad, this will be the hardest thing you've ever done because you have to play the role of a of, of, of a child, you know, predator. And even though we play yeah. the middleman, we play the ones negotiating the deals, yeah. And still you're gonna have to say things about these little kids. You're gonna have to make looks and gestures and, and and things that are gonna be really disgusting to you. And and I said, no, sweetie, you know, I'm good at compartmentalizing, I can go to my happy places. Well, the first operation I ever did in the year 2014 in Colombia, in Cartagena, when the trafficker brought out two young, scared girls and said, well, this one's 13 and this one's 12. And he said in Spanish, they have zero kilometers on them. They're virgins. They're ready to be sold for to American big boss man, right? That was the ruse. And I remember having to say, yeah, that's exactly what the boss wants. And then simultaneously wanting to throw up, wanting to strangle the trafficker, punch him out, but then having to stay in character and remembered what my wife said. And then she was absolutely right. This is the hardest thing I'll ever have to do.
0: So if my math is right, that was right about the age of your daughters.
1: Exactly. When you started Yep, absolutely my oldest was twelve. And in their eyes, you see the eyes of your children. And again, we are trying to do all we can to protect the girls, to not exploit them further, to try to keep them safe, even as we're acting like we're negotiating right, the price for for purchasing them. And we try as much as we can to pray ahead of time and ask God to lead us to the kids that need to be saved in that moment, or lead us to the perpetrators who need to be removed from society, or lead us to the host governments who need to be trained. And we try sometimes when we look at the victims to just pray that maybe a little look we can give them, you know, maybe Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit can maybe just Say hey, just hold on. We're, We're coming for you, and and it doesn't always work. But in a lot of times, we've seen some real miraculous rescues where children would say afterwards, "We thought no one was coming for us. We didn't think anyone was looking for us," and yet. God was able to send uh, angels to to save us. And obviously we don't look at ourselves like that. And like you said earlier, right. it's not to brag. It's not to beat our chest. But all we want to do is be tools in the hand of the Lord to try to do all we can to rescue and restore his precious children.
0: Yeah. So you go from essentially playing the negotiator to if you re- if you purchase these girls, you obviously it's it, you're not doing it um to to use them yourself but you're purchasing them to to save them or make them safe and then and then you have to build trust with them
1: exactly and so first you know we go in to these countries and we ask the host government so imagine mexico haiti colombia thailand Dominican republic and we get permission from prosecutors from police from government officials to go and do these investigations, to find where the traffickers are. And because of our American faces, and unfortunately it's the American male who the most part is is, is the predator. Obviously you've got Westerners and Canadians and Germans and all those, but again, Western males. So the traffickers look at us and think, okay, these guys want drugs or alcohol or, or, or girls. And they just offer all of their goods, and so so to speak. And so we kind of listen in, and, and we don't carry weapons. Our weapons are undercover cameras, hidden microphones, and recording the evidence for authorities. But building the trust first with host law enforcement, then building trust with these traffickers, right, which sounds bad, but you have to convince them that, hey, you're mm-hmm. here doing the deal. Yep. And then when you rescue the girls and boys, mostly girls, but boys are also in this, then when our aftercare team comes in, How do you build trust with them to let them know, hey, these guys who you thought were going to abuse you, they were actually the good guys. You know, they were actually here to help. And, you know, we get arrested as well. You can imagine these sting operations, at least temporarily, because we have to keep up the ruse, right? That, that we're being right. arrested. We can't let the traffickers know there's a setup. So my teenage girls think it's hilarious that their old man's been arrested like nine times in six different countries right <laughs> around the world uh, on some of these operations. And uh, but, but then the aftercare, and that's when the healing really begins. And you can imagine that the uphill battle if for a child, if he or she is an orphan or if, if her own mother sold her into this, or if some uncle was the one exploiting her, how do you do that? And so there's just a lot of prayer. There's a lot of faith that we can do all we can in this life. And then in the end, we're fortunate that God is all knowing and all loving and he will make all things whole in his time.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. So does the aftercare team travel with you on these missions?
1: They do. So our aftercare director's name is Jessica Mass, and she's such an amazing, strong Christian, wonderful woman. She's been a foster mom, you know, seven different times, and is just great. And she's one of the toughest people I know. She's a lot tougher than I am, that's for sure. (laughs) So she will come in as well. So imagine, Jen, and for your listeners, that. We set up the sting and, and when we've got everything, the, the, the money's been exchanged, we've confirmed the kids are there, we've got everything safe, you know, we give the sign, right? Hey, waiter, bring the wine, or hey, uh, where's Bob, you know, or whatever our code word is. And then the cops come in, they arrest the traffickers and they arrest us. Well, meanwhile, the Child Protective Services equivalent of each country is on standby. They come right in afterwards and our after care team is there as well. And our aftercare team has already laid the groundwork. Uh, we have now have a, a, a rule that we don't do any rescues in countries where there's not aftercare. And so Jessica and her team uh, are already liaisoning with different uh, safe houses, shelters, rehabilitation centers. So we know what beds, how many beds are available if the kids can't get back to their parents right away. And so she immediately begins to work with the Child Protective Service Equivalents to let the girls know you're not at fault. You're it's not your fault. You're not the you know you're not the uh, the perpetrator. Because unfortunately, law enforcement sometimes still treats quote unquote prostitutes, which is terrible. Yeah. Treats them as the perpetrators. Well, we're working to change that. So our aftercare team is there, and it's been so neat now. In the years we've been as an organization that the children, the minors we rescued are now adults and now willing to tell their stories and now willing to, to be able to accept the help we've given, whether it's scholarships to schools or trade schools or learning, you know, how to get your own business. Then now we have amazing success stories of victims who become survivors and survivors who have become thrivers.
0: Yeah. That's incredible. Like only Jesus can do that. Right? Exactly. So what, and you don't need to know exactly, but what percentage of these children that you are rescuing are um orphans or you know at risk at risk that meaning that they liked either their parents sold them or relatives sold them or talk about that for a second
1: correct, so it's not an exact a number yet, but we have around one third. About it's actually about thirty five percent now who cannot go home. So if that makes sense, so two thirds we usually can get back with parents. Maybe the parents knew a little bit, not that they were necessarily involved, but it's like, hey, you know, single mom who has seven eight mouths to feed, and some smooth trafficker comes in and says, hey, I can I can make your daughter a model, right? Or I have an old yeah. care job in mm-hmm. Europe. So again, it's not that the parents were involved, but maybe they just didn't know. But about a third of the, the kids were seeing, again, just no hope, uh, orphans, um, again, a family member was, was involved. And so that is when we have to get them into the different uh, shelters, the different aftercare homes. So fortunately, a majority of the victims we rescue are able to go home or they are adults because again, even though, like I said, my daughter's a 19 year old and yet I think, okay, I guess she's technically an adult, but at the same time, I, right. I still see you know, that she's still a child. And so again, we rescue 18 year olds, 19, 20, who still very much are dependent and have needs, but because they're considered adults, we can't um, put them in homes. We have to ask them if they want to. And there it's about 50, 50, who will take our assistance and who won't. And so- We can focus on the one that got away or we can focus on that parable, the starfish, right? I made a difference to that one. Then I made a difference to that one. And so that's kind of our numbers that we're seeing so far in our first few years of existence.
0: Yeah. And what what do you think the median age of the children are that you're rescuing?
1: So for us, the median age has started to tick up a little bit higher, which I think is good. That it means it's it's harder and harder to find the quote unquote kids. But still, the average age in the US that a child is forced into a sex, the sex trade. So imagine those are forced in. The average age is about 12 or 13. So that's still very, very young. Yeah. Overseas, we're trying to take steps now where we can do more online. Now, a lot of it shifted to the dark web and to other types of of cyber portals where it's harder and harder for us to get to, but we're trying as the bad guys continue to evolve and become more sophisticated. We're trying to evolve as well, working with law enforcement to really get those hardened criminals who are exploiting the very youngest.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've heard stories of, you know, children as young as like six months.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Right. And it just blows your mind. Doesn't it Jen? I mean, I just, I just can't believe it, but And again, not to be too deep, but I know you've got some great Christian listeners that, look, it's pretty clear in the Bible that Satan is real. It's pretty clear in the Bible that you know, there is evil and there is darkness. And so uh, he, in a lot of ways, is the God of this world. And so we have faith that it will all work out in the end. But uh, I'm just grateful that in Operation Underground Railroad and other groups, we're trying to do the best we can to bring light to darkness. And Tim Ballard always says that it's a scientific, you know, provable fact that light and darkness cannot exist at the same place at the same time. So we're willing to go into the darkness to shine the light And even though it is very spiritually draining a lot of times to have to see these things and you go into these areas, and like I said, mentioned earlier, say these words or give the girls these looks as we're trying to negotiate. But I have had some of the most spiritual moments when I've been undercover knowing that without a shadow of a doubt, God exists, Jesus exists. They know about every single one of us and they know Every single you know, need of these girls. And again, I don't know why God doesn't end it. He could, he could end human trafficking, he could save all these kids now. I know that we have free will and choice. I know that there are reasons, but I just have faith that all we can do is our own part. And so what yeah, I love when you said earlier in the introduction that it was clear to you with your training, clear to you with your experiences that you can do something and you are doing something, whether it's what you've already done or through this podcast or some of the training. I know you and I talked about offline that you're going to be doing with the guard and moving forward. But for each person listening who says, well, what can I do to help? Tim Ballard always says, you yourself will know before we do. So think about it. Do you have connections to law enforcement that you might be able to share with us? Do you have a social media platform you can post about our group and others? Are you able to donate? Are you able to pray? Are you able to spread the word? There's so much that each and every one of us can do to rise up and start to put an end to this uh, social scourge.
0: Absolutely. And that's such a great point because that's where I started. I started praying. That's where I started Yep. I sp- for years before I took any action. And, and now I don't necessarily recommend that, but I needed that time to prepare my heart um, to be able to face this. And it's gotten, I mean, obviously we've gotten some, some big changes made. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. Uh, what is the story that stuck with you the most, either on your undercover missions or a child that just broke your heart or what's the one that just kind of has stuck with you?
1: Boy, I tell you, we could fill a few of your podcasts with this. And so I would say that... It's actually an interesting one that maybe is a little more recent that happened last summer, and it is a warning to all of us. So I'm talking about any of us, whatever situation that let us not be too sure that we won't fall into something like this. And it happened in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, where my undercover team and I went into an illegal brothel in the city where we found a group of Venezuelan women, women from Venezuela who were being trafficked. These women were of age. They ranged in age from about 22 to 33, 10 of them. And yet this broke every stereotype that I or maybe some of your listeners would have about who is a trafficking victim. These women were brilliant and are brilliant. These women are smart. They were talented. They were educated. Some of them had their own businesses. Some of them had college degrees. But because in Venezuela, there are no real jobs now, the economy is a disaster. They had kids, they had mouths who needed to feed. They, smart women, were caught up in a very sophisticated and cunning trafficking ring that brought women from Venezuela to the Dominican Republic, where they had their passports taken, they were drugged, and then they were taken on a bus across the border to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, where they were kept in this brothel. And the, the owner of the brothel, he actually didn't even lock the doors. He would taunt the girls and say, oh, doors are unlocked. You can go if you want. But remember, I have your passports. You don't speak Haitian Creole. You don't look like Haitians. All the cops know me. They'll send you right back. And so these poor women, who again, very smart, and we would think worldly, how did they get trapped? well this can happen to any of us because this is how these traffickers are so sophisticated in their recruiting and how they groom and lure people in well these women would get together every night and they would pray for god to rescue them well they knew no no one is looking for them no one will find them well fortunately our operators rolled in and we spent the first night there just kind of talking to the the girls you know we we sort of set it up as Oh, okay. Well, we're going to have a big party in a few days. So right now we're not here to sample the goods. Don't worry. That's our boss is coming. Well, then we came back another night and one girl put into the hands of one of my operators a note that said in Spanish, Ayuda nos, por favor. help us please. And so we knew, okay, this is the real deal. We've got to get these girls out. Turns out later, we found out the story that these girls thought, huh, these, there's something different about these guys. This might be our only chance, right? I mean, who, they didn't yeah. know us from anything, but this is the Holy Spirit talking. And so they didn't want to get in trouble and, and they want to uh, reduce their risk. So one girl who is right-handed wrote, Ayuda nos por favor, help us please, in her left hand, so disguise her handwriting, then gave it to another woman who then put it in the hand of one of my operators. So just how smart and, cunning these, or how smart and clever these girls were and the right. fact that we were able to get them out and get them to safety, and now we're working to reunite them with their children.
0: Oh, that's a fantastic story! What a what a victory story, right? Yes. Who? So, what happens to uh, the survivors that that don't have a place to go back home? So they go to the halfway house, in the, and then what if they're not of age?
1: Correct. So we try to get there very early on, as I talk about Jessica Mass and her group to come in right away with resources. So what resources? Well, it depends on what they need. Does this child, does this victim survivor need education? A lot of times we're getting requests for English lessons in some of these Latin American countries, Southeast Asian countries, so we can provide English lessons. Sometimes they want to have their own businesses and this can run the stereotypical spectrum from your own tortilla stand all the way up to be a doctor or lawyer. And we're in the process now through some of our partners of trying to secure micro loans for these victims so they can have their own business. We've heard on so many occasions and even just last week, Uh, Jen, in Mexico. Last Tuesday, we rescued a 16-year-old girl who had been forced into this when she was 14. It's the same story we hear so often. She had a fight with her mom. She left. She says, I'm running away. And within two days, 48 hours, she was already locked into a human trafficking ring at the age of 14. Well, we get her out and she wants to have English lessons and she wants to be able to have her own business. And in her words, I want a job where I can feel proud of myself for once. Isn't that amazing to think, you know, because this work is so degrading that they're being forced to do. And so now they want something that can bring them pride and some sense of, of peace.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. So if she's, you know, 16, does she stay at that halfway house until she becomes an adult or are some of them adopted or what does that look like?
1: So for any minors, we we try to get them into the halfway house, uh, we try to get it, in this case it was like I mentioned, the Child Protective Services equivalent in Mexico, who's very good actually, they've got some great facilities. And so it's not always a happy story. Some try to run away. Some try to are lured back into the life because maybe their families are threatened or all these organized criminals threaten different parts of their social circles. But in a lot of times the kids don't want to go back. They want to stay in the program. And so we've had success stories helping to train, you know, survivors to be a chef or to be trained to be on other types of, of jobs. And so we always are engaging with them, letting them know that, hey, it's your choice. You can do whatever you want. You can be whatever you want. Don't listen to that lie that the traffickers were telling you that you're only good for satisfying the desires of these men who come through like a revolving door every day. You're more than that. So we yeah. try to do that in some places where it is appropriate. We actually get them into Christian homes. So we talk a little bit about Christ and his love and the power of the redemption and the atonement. Uh, oftentimes it's not appropriate based on cultural and other, other countries. So Really, it is a case-by-case basis where we're trying to do all we can to help the one, as I mentioned earlier.
0: Sure. Yeah. On an individual basis, child for child. Have you ever been tempted to adopt any of them, bring them home and raise them?
1: So I was at one point, we actually had helped uh, rescue a boy down in Guatemala. So I have two daughters and again, feel very blessed to be the father of two daughters. But I always thought, hey, it'd be kind of fun to have a son. So I talked to my wife a little bit about it and for a variety of reasons, it didn't work out, but yes, sure. very tempted. And then as some of you know, the story of OUR and Tim Ballard, he actually adopted the first two children he ever rescued for OUR, a brother and sister out of Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And so now he has two Haitian children who are with him. And uh, part of OUR, we have a partner group called CNF, Children Need Families. And if any of your listeners are interested in adopting international adoption, look at Children Need Families as part of OUR, and we provide scholarships, uh, loans, other types of financial assistance to this process that can be very expensive and very time consuming and we do balloon raids almost like the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes right i know i'm dating myself as an old guy (laughs) talking about this but where you hear a knock at the door and hey congratulations you've won you know you get balloons and money from cnf because that is the long-term solution if the children can't go home or if there are orphans, how can you help put them with families who love them because there's so many families out there who want children. And so again, it's a slow process. It's very much a work in progress, but that is something we're trying to do as well to facilitate these types of adoptions.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that resources because I know how expensive adoption can be. So that's fabulous that you guys are offering that. And I'll put all of this in the show notes if you're listening to it so you can find these resources really easily. Uh, So one of my last questions here, Matt, is how do your daughters and your wife um, handle it while you're gone?
1: So my wife has just been such a trooper over the years, you know, with the CIA and Department of State overseas, where sometimes I wasn't able to tell her where I was going to be or what I was going to be doing. But, you know, she would always have an emergency number. She knew she'd have an emergency number, whether it was in Washington, D.C. or at the respective embassies. She says this is pretty difficult for her, and she likens it to the spouses of the brave men and women who are first responders. I'm not as brave or talented or capable as the first responders, but you know those who have to grab a go bag and just go right Mm -hmm. into the the teeth of danger where you don't know when they'll be home. And so in some of our operations, my wife might know, okay, it's going to be Saturday at 2 p.m. in Bogota, Colombia. All right, that's the one hour ahead of us, so what time would that be? Well, that's when we plan the operation for, but you know, the trafficker might show up an hour late and then the cops may take an hour and then we might be arrested in handcuffs and cell service might not be good. So right. it could be hours and hours before she gets the text from me or call, hey, it's it's all good. And so that I think has been stressful for her. And then for my daughters, it was funny, they... Uh, you know, and some of your listeners probably know and your kids that, you know, you go from being the hero when they're very young, hero in their lives, (laughs) to then being a doofus and a know nothing when they get to be teenagers. (laughs) And then now they start to get a little bit older and they're thinking, okay, yeah, maybe my dad is kind of neat that he's doing these things. So it has definitely been a roller coaster. But what's very cool is to share some of these stories with my girls, first and foremost, to let them know how blessed they are in their life and how The world isn't ending, ladies, just because your iPhone screen got a crack in it, right? That sometimes, that there are real, there's real real problems out there. And the neatest thing has been able to have my daughters go to some of our partner homes and actually do service projects and get to meet some of these kids. And we did that when we were in Mexico. And we've been able to do that a little bit. Some of the poor areas around, uh, around Central America and the Caribbean. So that's really neat as well for them to realize, okay, I'm very blessed. I need to now do something with my life to make the world a better place. And my oldest daughter, for instance, now is studying to be a nurse and she's fluent in Spanish because of our overseas experiences. And she wants to help underprivileged uh, or hospitals for underprivileged uh, people who come in, those who might not speak English. And she also would like to go overseas someday and provide medical services to those who need it, who perhaps she can use her Spanish that way.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And then my last question is, uh, well, I guess second to last here, but have you ever been in a situation while you're undercover um, that, that you were really afraid or things didn't go right? Um, and and what was that like?
1: Yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, and I think my wife will laugh that, you know, your listeners are probably going to hear a couple of these stories that she doesn't even know. Sometimes <laughs> I sometimes I keep that from her just because I never want her to, 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 to worry. But this was a uh, – A couple of times, so I always joke that I never let anyone put the handcuffs on me if I'm not sure they're gonna take them off, you know, within an hour or so. Sure. Um, For the different times I'm arrested. But one of the times in Haiti, once again, where uh, I was actually arrested for real along with Jessica Mass, our aftercare director. And the reason that happened was we had done a great job of getting our Haitian partners, we worked with them very closely and it was in the, essentially their FBI. So imagine we're working with their FBI on a sting operation, they know who we are. Well, the resort where we had rented for the rescue was so large that the FBI equivalent in in Haiti didn't have enough manpower, people power to secure the whole perimeter of this vast estate. So they didn't want the girls to run away and get hurt. They didn't want the traffickers to get away. So they had called in members of the army, the Haitian army. Well, they did not tell the Haitian army and special police that we were working with them. They were working with us, that we were the good guys. So when everything went down and my operators started to leave the facility, the Haitian special police and army just assumed, hey, these must be some of the bad guys. They look like foreign tourists. We heard there was going to be a takedown of foreign tourists. So they actually pulled us out of cars, threw us on the ground, face down, put butts of rifles down on our backs, put the muzzles on, you know, on us and said, you know, you guys are going nowhere. Well, they were only speaking Haitian Creole, which I didn't speak much, don't speak much. And then uh, I have a little bit of French, but we were face down with the traffickers themselves. So I couldn't tell the special police, you know, hey, we're really the good guys because the traffickers would hear. Well, just a miracle. One of our Haitian translators happened to come by at that moment. He was supposed to be in another part of the resort. But the fact that he comes by and I was able to say to him in English, which neither the special police or the traffickers uh, understood, hey, pull the commander aside in quiet tell him that we're the good guys. So he did that. And then we were released within a few minutes, but that I think was probably I thought, Holy cow, this is where I actually do go to a Haitian jail for real.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And you just never know what's going to happen if you go to a real Haitian jail, do you? Correct. (laughs) All right. How can people get involved?
1: Well, thank you so much. So our website is ourrescue.org. And there are different, you can see videos, you can learn about our team. And we always say that if you can pray for us, we always need that. If there's any way you can donate, we have our abolitionist club for as little as $5 a month. $5 truly does save lives. Spread the word, not just about our group, but other groups uh, fighting human trafficking. And just to really keep your antenna out, to be educated, on our website, OURrescue.org slash training is the training I believe you mentioned, Jen, the signs of trafficking training. and we talk about that, it's a very digestible training where there are several modules. You can watch them at your convenience, three minutes here, five minutes there, 10 minutes there, however you have the time and interest. That I believe will empower you to keep your antenna up so that they might have, your listeners might have experiences like your husband did and like you did when you actually see something and can say something or can make a positive difference.
0: Absolutely. And the amount of things I learned from that training that I I didn't know before, um, I, And I didn't even mention that, you know, the handful of tips I've called in to the secure line that Mm -hmm. you guys have, too, because you just start to notice stuff like we talked about at the beginning. Once your eyes are open to it, you cannot unsee it. Correct. Well, Matt, I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you for just your vulnerability and sharing this things that are not easy to talk about. I found myself even just getting choked up just mentioning, you know, purchasing girls or children Mm. or anything. And you have to live that out. And so I just want to say thank you for your bravery. Thank you for what you're doing. I'm honored that you took the time to be here. And um, I can't wait to see what continues to come out of this.
1: Well, thanks to you, Jen, for doing this. It's so important to shine a light on this problem. Thanks to your listeners as well. And for all who will get involved. They're just, we're very, very grateful.
0: Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked what you heard today, it would mean the world to me if you would take 30 seconds and give me a five star rating, write a quick review, and subscribe to the podcast. And share it with any of your family or friends that you feel like this episode could bless. It helps get the word out more than you know. Or if you know someone that's a hope dealer and has an incredible story that needs to be shared, go to my website at www.exaltedhealth.com forward slash podcast and fill out the podcast guest form. The world needs these stories of Jesus now more than ever. Or if you have a miracle or testimony of an incredible Jesus moment, you can go to our website and fill out the testimonial page for a chance to get a shout out on the podcast. We'll see you next time.